Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am their bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. Father, we do thank you for your word, for the time of worship and fellowship that we've had. And uh, like Lisa was praying, Lord, we do want you to do something special here this morning. We ask that that in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. About 20 years ago, Bob Talley was celebrating his 100th birthday at a nursing home in England. Not only was there great fanfare that he actually made it to 100, there were two more events that made this day one that many would never forget. Allow me to read you the newspaper clip. Bob Talley reached his 100th birthday, read a congratulatory telegram from Queen Elizabeth, uttered a proud, yes, I made it, and then promptly died. But his sudden departure did little to dampen the celebration. His family and friends and the staff at the nursing home in southeast London went ahead with a party as he lay there in his bed. It was a bit of a shock when we were told that Uncle Bob had died on the morning of his birthday, Tally's niece, Barbara Barwell, told the Daily Telegraph. But everyone was turning up to the party. It was great. Everyone was dancing with each other and reading his cards with him lying there, Barwell said. He knew he had reached 100, and I think he just relaxed and let go. When I read that, I thought, if it were not for the resurrection of Christ, that would be about the best that any of us could hope for. To live to be a hundred, get a call from a world leader, pump our fists once, say, yes, I made it, and then die. Viewed from that standpoint, it's a bit anticlimactic, isn't it? Think about it. Here you traveled this journey of life for 100 years, and two minutes after you die, people are eating a cake and dancing around your quickly cooling corpse. I remember one black preacher that told a group of young people, children, one day you are going to die, and they're going to chuck you into a hole, and everybody's going to go back to the church and eat potato salad. (laughs) Talk about putting things into perspective. Thankfully, because of Jesus, our life here is not the end. In fact, it is just the beginning. We're going to see that Jesus promises to raise us up on the last day. Look at verse 40 with me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? I'm actually going to comment on verse 40 when we get to verse 44, since it's just restating the same concept. But I first want us to look at verse 41, where we read that the Jews were complaining about Jesus. Verse 41 says, the Jews then complained about him. I wonder if we realize how God views us when we are also complaining about him. The initial thing I would like us to see is that it's so much easier to fix blame than it is to fix problems. What I mean is anyone can sit back and critique things. 
It reminds me of a cartoon of a man talking to his pastor over coffee. The caption reads, All I'm trying to say is that certain people might think that 12-15 is a little late to be getting out of church, that a pastor doesn't need three weeks of vacation, that your office is offensive, that a guy my age doesn't need a guy your age telling him how to raise his kids, and that if it weren't for your crazy third world projects, we could have repaid the parking lot by now. I'm not saying those are my opinions, of course. I just thought you should know what others might be thinking. I've often found out that those who complain usually do very little but complain. The gift of grumbling is largely dispensed among those who have no other talents or who keep what they do have wrapped up in a napkin. Another word the Bible uses for complaining is the word murmur. Now, murmur is one of those unique words in the English language that solely exists because they sound like the thing that they describe. It's referred to as an onomatopoeic word. Hiss is such a word. Swiss is another. And buzz is a third. And likewise, in the Greek, the verb translated grumbling both means and sounds like muttered complaints and whispers of displeasure. It is the Greek word gagudzo. You can almost hear the growl in the word, can't you? Here it is early Monday morning. As you roughly brush past a co-worker on the way to the coffee pot, they have the unmitigated nerve to ask you how you are doing. And all you reply is, gagudzo. We have a saying that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And so consequently, murmuring and complaining are sort of acceptable to us. But they shouldn't be. The scripture teaches otherwise, or sometimes rather than getting the grease, the squeaky wheel gets replaced. Did your mom or dad ever say to you, you want to cry? Oh, I'll give you something to cry about. I heard that a lot growing up. And that's what's happening here. When the manna was given in the wilderness, what did the people do? They murmured. And now they're murmuring once more in response to Jesus' statement that he is the bread sent from heaven. Now their lack of gratitude isn't just a tiny sin. This is a big deal to God. In fact, hundreds of years later in Psalm 95, God was still talking about the offensive faithless complaining of the Israelites in the desert. Indeed, over a thousand years later, we read in Hebrews 3, that God was still talking about all the complaining and whining that took place in the desert. The question is, why? Why does God take grumbling and complaining so seriously? It's because he takes it personally. He graciously provides for his children, but instead of noticing and being grateful, very often people complain. Of course he's going to take that personally. The grumbling of the disbelieving Jews resembled the grumbling of their ancestors in the wilderness. They complained about having no food, so the Lord provided bread from heaven. Then they complained about only having manna, so the Lord provided quail. If you recall, the Lord said, you want meat? Well, I'll give you meat. You'll eat meat until it's coming out of your nostrils. You see, the manna was both a provision, both his provision of grace and also a test. How they received the manna and whether they followed the Lord's instructions revealed the sincerity of their faith. 
While Jesus was speaking of his miraculous conception and natural birth by means in which God became flesh, these people did not accept the truth about him coming down from heaven. And so we see in verse 42 that they have a hard time believing Jesus because they had watched him grow up. What is more, his brothers apparently made the city their home. And so these people had seen Jesus during his boyhood and thought they knew all about his roots. Now this is nothing new. Listen to what happened when Jesus revisited his hometown of Nazareth in Matthew 13. It says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now listen to the next verse. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. The result of that, he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Look at verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Basically, this set of verses is teaching us that nobody can come to God unless the Father first draws them. Now, how often the Father will continue to draw an individual for salvation, I do not know. I know that he's abundant in mercy and grace, but I also know he has the ability and the right to harden a person's heart if that person continually and consistently refuses to be drawn. I don't know about you, but I find that to be a terrifying concept. Just know that if God didn't draw us, none of us would have came to him on our own. That's why Romans 3.10 says, and this is what would happen to us if we were left to ourselves. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. I like how one lady explained it. She writes, a year or two ago, my friend Linda's cat escaped. It was cold and rainy, and that cat would not come home. Not for three days. The cat wasn't exactly lost because Linda knew its location. It was a good 20 feet up in a tree right outside the back of the house. But that little critter would not come down. So another friend named Jim took a long extension ladder over to help. And he called me for my unique expertise, which is ladder holding in the rain. That cat probably hadn't eaten in three days. It was cold and scared, but when Jim finally got up there, that cat was not glad to see him. Instead, it was downright hostile. In fact, the only way Jim got the cat down was to put a towel over its head and pry its claws out of the tree. Jim did all the rescuing. All the cat did was finally let go of the tree. 
Now, here's the intriguing thing to me about that little story. Salvation is very often just like that. It is when we finally let go of the things that were actually the source of our misery. None of us can look to Jesus, remembering our rescue, and say, Hey, Jesus, we made a pretty good team, didn't we? That just makes no sense. But did you know the most incompetent people don't know they are incompetent? In fact, researcher Dr. David A. Dunning of Cornell University reports that people who are incompetent are more confident of their abilities than competent people. Dunning and his associate Justin Krieger believe that the skills required for competence are the same skills necessary to recognize that ability. Kruger writes, not only do incompetent people reach erroneous conclusions and make unfortunate choices, but their incompetence robs them of the ability to realize it. That is the way we were spiritually without Christ. Our sin not only separates us from God, it also blinds us to our predicament. In verse 44, Jesus then promises us that those who do respond to God's drawing, they can have confidence that they will be raised up on the last day. As some of you know, this week, Christian author and apologist Robbie Zacharias went home to be with the Lord. On January 4th of this year, Robbie recited a stanza from this hymn from the late Richard Baxter. Allow me to read you a portion of it. Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. If life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. If short, yet why should I be sad to welcome endless day? Then I shall end my sad complaints and weary sinful days and join with the triumphant saints that sing my Savior's praise. My knowledge of that life is small, the eye of faith is dim, but tis enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. That is the hope of every Christian throughout all of history. One day we will be raised and live together forever. Jesus then tells them that they can, they can believe him because he is the only one among them who has actually seen the Father. D.O. Moody once said, As I go into a cemetery, I like to think of the, time, of the time when the dead shall rise from their graves. Thank God our friends are not buried. They are only sown. Verse 47, please. Truly, truly, I say to you, who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. In the Old Testament, God said, I am who I am. And the question is, who am you? Jesus said, it is me, the word made flesh. Now, this is the first of seven highly significant statements in John's gospel where the phrase, I am, is joined with metaphors expressing Christ's work as Savior. Throughout the Bible, God describes himself as the I am. We first find this declaration in the Old Testament when God meets Moses in a burning bush. And he tells him to return to the Israelites to lead them out of captivity. Moses asks, what shall I tell them? And God says, tell them that I am has sent you. 
Tell them the God who has always been, always is, and always will be, has sent you. God gives them a name that speaks of who God is in himself. I am that I am. As we come to the New Testament, we find the I am wrapped himself in flesh and made his dwelling among men. In addition to the bread of life, Jesus also used I am to describe himself in these terms. I am the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, I am the true vine. It is obvious that when the Lord Jesus spoke of himself as the bread, he was using an image about which everyone knew about. So we turn to what people knew about bread for this meaning. What is important about bread? The first answer is bread is necessary for life. But the most intriguing aspect about Jesus' identification with bread is the process in which bread is made. That is, a seed of grain is planted in the ground, and after some time it springs up and grows into maturity. Then it is cut down, ground up, and placed into the fire. And after it is thoroughly baked, it is enjoyed by humanity. This is exactly what happened to Jesus. A seed was planted in the womb of Mary miraculously, and from that, God incarnate came forth and grew into maturity. He was cut down as he was pinned to the cross, ground up as he was cursed and spat upon, and then placed in the fire of God's wrath as he absorbed the sins of all mankind. And because he has been planted, cut down, ground up, and burned in the fire of God's very wrath, you and I have the opportunity to eat of him daily, never tiring of him. We have the option of always receiving strength and sustenance for the challenges of any given day. Truly, Jesus is the bread of life. The analogy is perfect. Now, in Christ's day, bread was even more essential than in our time, for it was the only staple in many people's diets. Without bread, men died. If you see that, then you can also see that Jesus was claiming to be the one whom men and women cannot live without. Before we move on, I have to ask, are you trying to do it without him? Are you going your own way, saying, I'll take care of myself. I can get by. I live in an affluent age. I have a house, a car, plenty to eat, a good job, a family. I don't need Jesus. What if everything in this entire life should go well for you, but you should lose your very soul? Would that be a gain? Would you consider that a good bargain to be without Jesus forever? You cannot do without him, and neither can I. Now, it is true you can manage after a fashion for a time, but you cannot ever thrive. In another of the I am sayings, he has declared, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes through the Father except through me. He is the life. And you will remain dead spiritually without him. Verse 49, please. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. Jesus is now going to compare himself to the manna of the Old Testament and show them why he is so much greater than what they partook of 
in the wilderness wanderings. It's not difficult to see the manna as a picture of the Lord Jesus because the manna was a mysterious thing to the Jews to the extent that the word manna means, what is it? Like that, Jesus was a mystery to those who saw him. The manna came at night from heaven and Jesus came to this earth when sinners were in moral and spiritual darkness. We are told that the manna that fell from heaven was small and it was round and it was white, and it tasted like honey. Jesus now uses manna as a picture of himself. How so? Jesus was also small in the sense of humility as he left his throne of glory and came to this earth to live like one of us. That is humility. The manna was also round. That speaks of eternality. As a circle, it has no beginning and no end. Likewise, Jesus said, I am the eternal I am. I am the alpha and the omega. The white color of manna speaks of purity. The Lord Jesus had no sin, no spot or blemish whatsoever. And finally, the manna had the taste of honey and its sweetness. The scripture even says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, it's not enough just to think about his character or to debate his profound words. No. To know him as Savior, you must actually go the next step and taste him to experience who he truly is. But here's something else to consider about the manna. In the wilderness, the manna would come down. The people could either stoop down, pick it up and eat, or if they chose not to, they would end up trampling on the very thing that God had provided. It was to be picked up morning after morning. This is a picture, I think, of the everyday importance of picking up on the Lord in devotions. We have that same choice every morning. And when we don't, we are, what we are doing in essence is saying, I don't need the Lord today. I think I can handle things myself. And not to stretch the analogy too far, it's also interesting that as the day progressed, the manna would just melt away until it had disappeared. What am I saying? Many times people will say to me, I just don't feel the Lord or sense his presence. And I often wonder, do you truly take the time on a daily basis to carve out a section of time where you partake of the manna in worship, prayer, and a time of reading his word? I'm with you on this. It is so easy to skip our devotional time and rush into the day with all its troubles and trials. But then we are left to face them in our own abilities. And we find that our strength, like that manna, has melted. And I also think the Lord will allow us to fight the battle in our own strength just to show us that we can't. You need an example? Back in Deuteronomy, we are given the account of Israel's failure to enter the promised land. And so God tells them that they now can't enter, but will march around the desert until the majority of them die out. Israel's response, they're now ready to fight. But it's too late. But they, like us sometimes, are going to do to try to do it in their own strength. How do you think that turns out? This is Deuteronomy 141. Then you answered and said to me, 
We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And when every one of you had girded on his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And the Lord said to me, Tell them, Do not go up to fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. The result? And the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and drove you back from Seir all the way to Hormah. This is what can happen if we try to live the Christian life by trusting in our own abilities. It's always best to start each day with the Lord. Let me draw one more conclusion about the manna. We are told the manna was either picked up, trampled on, or just melted away. Or fourthly, some said, picking up manna daily is too hard. So let's just gather a bunch of it, and that way we'll be good for several days. That way we don't have to go out every morning. Well, if you know the story, you know that we are told that if you try to store it, it bred worms and began to smell bad. So if you try to store it, it just ended up stinking. What does that tell us? There are people who say, you know what? I've had enough of Bible study. I don't need to go to church every Sunday or gather with God's people at other times. I've got plenty stored up. I've been a Christian for many years. But you know what? You're going to end up stinking. <laughs> because what will, happen to, what will happen to justify your own spiritual laziness and disobedience you will find reasons not to gather with God's people. And if we do that, including myself, I promise you, our flesh will begin to stink. It's just the way God has ordained it, and it cannot be changed. Am I saying if we have a consistent devotional life, there won't be any problems? Of course not. In fact, sometimes the enemy will actually increase the pressure that's called spiritual warfare. But I am learning this. I would rather go through battles with the Lord than have smooth sailing without Him. I remind us all, once again, this life is just the testing ground for eternity. As we finish up this morning, I heard a story about a Scotsman who was coming to America. He had purchased passage on one of those great ocean liners he didn't have much money, so he decided to save up on food by stocking up on crackers, cheese, and fruit before the departure. The ship sailed, and he began to eat his Spartan meals. This went fairly well for the first four or five days. But as the ship grew closer to New York, the crackers became increasingly stale, the cheese became moldy, and the fruit spoiled. Finally, there was nothing left that was fit to eat. The Scotsman decided he would go to the dining room and have one last good meal before the liner docked in Manhattan and went ashore. Imagine his surprise to discover that nothing in the dining room cost anything and that all that he could have ever eaten had already been included in the price of his ticket before he left the British Isles. Unfortunately, this is the way in which men and women act toward the true bread of life. That is offered to us without price in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is there for all. 
But the tragedy is that many would rather feed upon the dry crackers of human philosophy or the spoiled fruit of good works than to come to him. It must be personal. You must eat. No one else can do it for you. It's also true in regard to your relationship with Christ. You cannot get along by saying, well, my husband believes, or my wife believes, or my parents believes. The question is, do you believe? Are you feeding upon Jesus? It will determine whether your faith carries you or you carry your faith. Lord, we thank you for your word today. I pray, Lord, that everyone within the sound of my voice, even on the internet and everywhere else, that you would take this word and just drive it deep into our hearts. Only you know where we are at with you. I pray that your drawing power would be here today, Lord. That if anyone does not know you, they would come to you this day and eat of that bread of life. We ask in Christ's name, amen.